You are listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's program is entitled Pleasure. Hello my radio friends, I'm glad you've joined me today for another program in the series, Give Me the Bible. Today we'll be talking about pleasure. Various newspapers and magazines from time to time publish survey results from polls they conduct. Here's a list of 14 of the top rated pleasures from one poll taken in England. Firstly, a good night's sleep. Secondly, finding a forgotten £10 note in your pocket. Thirdly, cuddling up with a partner in bed. Four, crying with laughter. Five, having a lie-in. Six, sleeping in newly laundered bedding. Seven, getting a bargain. Eight, making someone smile. Nine, catching up with an old friend. Ten, laughing at things that have happened in the past. Twelve, Someone saying, you look nice. 13. Curling up on the sofa with a good book and a hot drink or soup. 14. Discovering you've lost a few pounds or kilos. And number 15. Was breakfast in bed. No doubt such reader polls would have different results in different areas and in different ages. Probably... Among the greatest pleasures are four things. Sex, eating, music and satisfaction in successfully completing a project. It is interesting that mankind has a built-in desire for pleasure. It seems that very few, if any, want to go through life with little or no pleasure. Experiencing pleasure can have very positive physical and psychological benefits. The idea that pleasure can be your guide to good health involves no exaggeration or stretch of the imagination. This concept is based on scientific fact and will stand up to the strictest scrutiny. The exhortation to learn what pleasure is and how to incorporate it into our lives is a call to return to good sense and good health. But the opposite is also true. Not experiencing sufficient pleasure in your life can have serious negative effects on your health, leading to heart disease, cancer, and psychological disorders. In simple terms, pleasure involves any activity that carries with it some kind of positive reward. One true pleasure that many people have experienced 
is being forgiven. You see, sin weighs you down. Some sins may, for a time, seem to be pleasurable. But in the long term, sin carries with it guilt and a lack of lasting satisfaction. Take, for example, cheating. Whether in an exam, in business, in putting in a false tax declaration, in making shortcuts or whatever, the cheat knows what he or she has done is wrong. Fear of being discovered and knowing one has been untruthful has negative psychological consequences. I did read once that mental institutions are filled with many people who are experiencing guilt. Guilt is a killer. It's a good thing to be able to look someone in the eye and know that what you have done is right. The Bible also gives counsel on how we should act. It's found in Luke 6, 38, and it says, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with what measure you use, it will be measured to you. Many of you will already know that I grew up on a farm where along with having sheep, cattle and cereal growing, we grew fruit and vegetables. We grew oranges and other fruits and from time to time when the citrus fruit was ripe, we would pick a truckload of oranges and my father then would travel around the district especially to the dry land farmers, and sell the fruit. Back then, fruit was sold by the case or half case. A case was a wooden box measuring about 28 centimetres wide, about 50 centimetres long, and about 40 centimetres high. I remember well how my father would fill up the wooden case not just to water level of the box, but would pile the oranges up over the top so that could not hold even one more. Needless to say, with good measure like that, the next time my father visited his customers, they were willing to buy because they got a good deal. And my father could drive away knowing he'd given a good deal, and have pleasure from being generous. And you know, that's how God is with us. He's generous, not giving us what we deserve, but being kind to us. He loves the unlovely. He does good even to those who are bad. He pours out blessings on the righteous and the unrighteous. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18 and verse 23, is a powerful verse that talks about God's pleasure, or, in this case, his lack of it. 
The verse says, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord? And not that he should return from his ways and live? Meaning, God has no pleasure in destroying the wicked. He would much rather that the wicked would turn from his bad ways and live a righteous life. God does not have any pleasure in destroying the wicked. Now this is confirmed in the book of Genesis, which records how mankind had become so wicked that God decided that the earth must be cleansed with water in a worldwide flood. Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5, 6 and 7 tell how God felt. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thought of man's heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Did you notice what it says about how God felt? The Bible says the Lord was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. The King James Version says the Lord was grieved at heart. Now, with reference to the flood, the Bible continues. Jesus speaking about conditions on the earth in Matthew 24 verses 28 and 9, 29 rather, said, For as in the days that were before the flood, the people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered into the ark. They knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Did it give God any pleasure to destroy humanity back at the time of the great flood? No, not at all. The Bible is quite clear that God was grieved at what had happened to his beautiful creation and to man, the pinnacle of his creation. The Lord felt extremely sad and hurt and sorrowful. God has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, not back then, not now, and not in the future. Yet there are those who maintain that God intends to deal with the wicked at a future time in a sadistic and inhumane way by burning them in hell forever and ever. In maintaining this erroneous doctrine, they are implying that God will take pleasure in the destruction or, at least, in the destroying process. We've dealt with the topic of hell in some previous programs, but I need to point out to you that God is not a tyrant taking delight in an orgy of pain. The Bible tells us in clear terms that must not be understood that God is love. That statement is found in 1 John chapter 4 
and verse 8. The statement doesn't say God has love or that God is loving. It goes way beyond that because all that God is and his modus operandi, his way of doing things, is always and only from love. God's love is characterized by the fact that mankind was given the right of choice. This is a very important point. True love incorporates choice. We may choose to serve and obey God and respond positively to him, or we may choose to ignore, disobey and dishonor him. Of course, God prefers that we understand that he is a beautiful God who only wants the best for his people. If God prevented people from disobeying him, in other words, if he forced them to obey, could he be regarded as a God of love? Of course not. If obedience was forced, human beings would have no choice and we would then be nothing better than robots. We're going to have a little break and we'll go on with this afterwards.
point I was talking about just before the break is a very, very important thing. True love is expressed when people have the freedom to obey or disobey. And that is exactly what God has given us. So, since God has given the human race the freedom to obey or disobey, and when people exercise that right, how do you think God feels? No doubt he's saddened when people choose not to serve him, but is gladdened when people exercise the right to, to choose to serve him. Luke chapter 15 verse 8 tells us there is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Why? Simply because that person has chosen to obey and honour God. The point is that God has no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But since God has given mankind the choice to obey or disobey him, he could be rightly accused of being grossly unfair if those who have chosen not to serve him are given such a harsh treatment, such as being burnt forever and ever in torment in hellfire, to be eternally punished for exercising the right to choose is a contradiction. When most of humanity was destroyed by in Noah's flood, how long do you think it took the wicked ones to die? Well, it probably would have been quite a short time. Not days or weeks or years or millennia. And it will be the same when God cleanses the earth with fire. Revelation chapter 20 verses 14 and 15. Speaking about the destruction of the wicked has this to say, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And how long would someone remain alive if cast into a lake of fire? Not very long, only probably a few seconds. Certainly not millions and millions and millions of years. But did you notice that verse 14 said that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire? That means that death will be no longer and hell will be no longer. Both death and hell will be obliterated. Death and hell are in these texts personified. The fact that they are cast into the lake of fire represents the end of death and the end of the abode of the death, hell. Never will they exist again and they will never be part of God's new creation in the new earth. They are mortal phenomena and only belong to this world. They are interlinked 
that is hell and the grave, and they are only associated with death. You see, hell has been misconstrued as a place where some people go after they've died but come alive again to be punished for eternity. Not so. As the text in Revelation clearly says, hell will be no more after God finally cleanses the earth of sin with fire, a lake of fire that encompasses the whole earth. If you're troubled about God being a tyrant who takes delight in punishing the wicked throughout the endless eons of eternity, don't worry. It won't happen. The punishment is eternal, not the punishing. And if you're troubled about a loved one being roasted in fire without any end to it, don't worry. It will not happen. When God destroys the wicked, he will destroy them. Satan and his evil angels, sin and the effects of sin on the earth will be all destroyed with fire that nobody can quench. God doesn't do things by half. He'll make a complete job of the destruction of sin and its effects. And then, as we're told in Revelation 21 verse 5, God announces and says, Behold, I make all things new. The prophet John in vision saw what would happen and wrote about what he saw. It is recorded in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. This is what he recorded. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. No, God is not going to patch up this sin-corrupted world. It'll be swept clean and then made new. There will be no more sin, no more pain, no more disease, no more death, crying or sorrow. For as we are reminded in Revelation chapter 21, 4, the former things are passed away. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but it will be necessary to cleanse the universe of sin, sinners and the effects of sin. And that's why the earth will be cleansed with fire. This final cleansing is described in Isaiah chapter 28 verse 21 as God's strange act. The verse says that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Here's a little illustration that may help us understand this a bit better. In our home, we've had several pets. Pip was a border collie dog, and we loved him very much. He was clever, loving, and very interactive. But towards the end of his quite long life, he became sick. The vet said he wouldn't live much longer, so we decided to have him put down 
by lethal injection. I can tell you that was a sad day when that happened, but we did it out of love. God is love, and he has a similar strange act to perform. But there's an upside to all this. Those who've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus and whose names are written in the book of life will be given eternal life and will spend an endless eternity enjoying God and what he has made. I, for one, want this. And I hope you do too. God eagerly and passionately desires your company and your allegiance. He's done everything possible that you may have eternal life except to make the personal decision to accept it. That has to be your decision, yours and yours alone. And if you reject God, he will respect your choice. After all, he has given you choice in the first place. He will not force you into eternal torture. Well, we must stop. Thank you for joining me today. And until next time, I wish you blessings and joy and peace.